So, can you all hear me? So, with tonight's Dharma talk, we continue on the theme of exploring the three characteristics of existence. And tonight, the topic is one of our very favorite topics, the topic of dukkha, of suffering. And I want to start off by a quote that one of the staff, Mark, actually gave me. He thought it would be very appropriate. And I very much agreed with him that it was the perfect quote to open this talk. Mark Twain said, I've lived through some terrible times in my life, some of which actually happened. (laughs) (laughs) And before I start talking about dukkha, about suffering, about disease, about dissatisfaction, I want to remind us of something that uh, Bonte said when he gave his wonderful talk about the hindrances. He said that, um, he reminded us that there's three levels of understanding the Dharma, the Dhamma. Uh, One level is that we can learn from theory. One level is that we learn from practice. And one level is that we learn from insight and realization. And I want to read a little story that pertains to that. A nun asked the sixth Zen patriarch, I have studied the Enlightenment Sutta for many years, yet there are many areas I do not quite understand. Can you please enlighten me? The patriarch responded, I'm illiterate. Please read out the characters to me, the characters of the sutta, and perhaps I I would be able to explain the meaning. The nun was really surprised, and she said, You can't even recognize the characters? How are you able to understand the meaning? The Zen patriarch said, Truth has nothing to do with words. Truth can be likened to the bright moon in the sky. Words, in this case, can be likened to a finger. The finger can point to the moon's location. However, the finger is not the moon. To look at the moon, it is necessary to gaze beyond the finger, right? So I wanted to open that story because all of us, especially me, and by me I mean all of us, um, you know, we have a a lot of conceptual understanding and thoughts roaming around our minds when we're on the cushion on on our retreats. We, you know, the thoughts just proliferate, you know, papancha arises, we just have a lot of thoughts and um, thoughts are like little teeny theories about what's going on. You know, they're little teeny theories. You know, I'm actually a social researcher and in order to um, do research we have to build models of what we think is happening in the world and we'll have a model of the context, you know, the history, the context of how individuals are interacting, context of what the outcomes are, proximal and distal outcomes, like really complex models. And those are just pale against what the truth of our lives are, just the complexity of them. You know, our lives are determined by subatomic particles, by our genetics, by epigenetics, by our family systems, by our neighborhoods, the schools we went to, what we ate for breakfast in the morning, histories of colonization and slavery. And we think that two or three thoughts in our mind can explain what's happening in front of us. (laughs) 
It's like we have stick figure theories in our minds. Our thoughts are stick figures compared to the complexity of really what's going on. So, you know, it's just a way to think about that to um, just get, you know, more um, insight on these habit patterns in our mind so we can let them go to look more closely at really what's happening on our cushion. So, dukkha. So, dukkha is really a simple translation. You know, the simple translation of dukkha is suffering, but it really refers to a range of sensations in the body and in the mind. And, you know, these sensations are actually unpleasant, neutral, and pleasant. And these um, dukkha or suffering arises due to very specific conditions and causes. Um, the notion of suffering or dukkha, and I like the word dukkha. I know a lot of people don't like poly terms, but I really like the word dukkha because there's not really a good translation of it in English. So as a way to honor its um, holistic sense and its sense um, that there really is no Western linear translation of that, I'm going to use the term dukkha, but I will definitely go into explaining what I mean by that. So um, dukkha, the notion of dukkha or suffering, is really fundamental to the Buddhist teachings. And we find them both, uh, one, in the four ennobling truths and in the three characteristics of existence. And first I want to say a word about the four ennobling truths. And why do we call them noble truths? Do you ever wonder that? Why are they noble truths? or ennobling truths. And it's said that if you do understand the Four Noble Truths, or these truths, it really provides a lot of um, dignity and integrity to your life. To understand them is to really walk with integrity and wisdom. So that is a very ennobling thing. So what are the Four Ennobling Truths? The first one is the one I'm going to be talking about tonight, and that is the Noble Truth of Dukkha suffering, unsatisfactoriness, stress, disease. And what's interesting about the Four Noble Truths is that they're not something to believe, to be believed. They are something to be acted upon. Each and every one has a verb associated with it. And the Noble Truth of Dukkha is to be known, is to be understood. The Buddha said that. Dukkha is to be known. The second Noble Truth is the truth of the origins of dukkha, and that is craving and clinging. And the second noble truth, the origin of dukkha, is to be let go. That is the verb associated with it. We know dukkha and we let go of craving and clinging. The third noble truth is the noble truth of freedom, awakening, happiness, and bliss. And... The Buddha said that this noble truth of awakening, happiness, and bliss is to be experienced. He's given us this methodology for experiencing this happiness and bliss. And then the fourth noble truth, the way to leading to freedom, awakening, happiness, and bliss, maga, path, the Eightfold Path, is to be cultivated. So the Eightfold Path is to be understood, let go, realized, and cultivated. So, this is the truth of dukkha. Suffering is to be known. How can we know dukkha? 
Buddha taught that there's three types of dukkha in our lives. The first type of dukkha was dukkha dukkha, the suffering of suffering, or the suffering of pain. And um, I don't know if this is true, but I think that it's true that this type of dukkha, the first type of uh, dukkha, is associated predominantly with unpleasant vedana or unpleasant, you know, um, feeling tone. And, you know, we associate this type of dukkha, this is just uh, the dukkha that we all experience of giving birth, growing old, physical illness, and the process of dying. It's essentially the dukkha of having a body. And we, I know for sure that we have all experienced this dukkha on you know, our few days here so far, because, you know, we've heard it, and I've experienced it. We have all experienced it. Uh, We're sitting on chairs or cushions. Um, There is pain in the body. You know, some of us have some chronic medical conditions or an acute medical condition. You know, all of us, every single one of us, are growing older, and this manifests, manifests in dukkha in the body. Um, Tanisara, um, this wonderful um, teacher who used to be a nun, Tanisara tells this great story about Ajahn Chah. And um, Ajahn Chah is a, really our spiritual grandfather. He was a Thai forest monk. Is there anybody here from Thailand? Anyway, so um, he was a Thai forest monk and he um, had, he, you know, he built a, a monastery. He, you know, he had really wonderful dharma, and people recognized just how enlightened he was and what a wonderful teacher he was. So, he built a monastery for Thai um, people. But then Westerners came, and he got real famous, and a lot of Westerners came. So they actually, he actually built a, a monastery in northern Thailand just for Westerners. So he was just really a wonderful teacher. And uh, Tanisra tells this very short story about him that he was visiting one of his Western monks. His Western monks got sick, and he was in the hospital. And Ajahn Chah went to the hospital to see his monk. And the monk says to Ajahn Chah, this is so painful. There's so much grief. It shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening. And Ajahn Chah just really calmly took his hand and said to him, if it shouldn't be happening, it wouldn't be happening. This is just to point out that our bodies have the tendency to, to, it's their nature to grow old and suffer. It's like asking water not to be wet, asking the sun not to be hot. It's not going to (laughs) happen. We have to surrender to the reality of the nature of our bodies. And once we do that, there's a possibility of letting go of that second arrow. That second arrow, the first arrow is the suffering of the body, of its nature. The second arrow is our um, sorrow and lamentation that somehow it shouldn't be happening, that it's a mistake. The second arrow of suffering in part is the false belief that it shouldn't be happening, that it's somehow a personal failure, that it's a mistake. That somehow if we just got the right pillow or if we had exercised more or didn't have too much, you know, that extra helping of lunch, this, this wouldn't be happening to us. But, you know, that's just the nature. It's the nature of our bodies. And to surrender to that is a certain amount of freedom. And, you know, one of the 
I know that one of the reasons that we practice is not only for our own um, liberation and for our own happiness and to be of help to our own suffering, but it's also for the, for the people around us. Um, there's a young woman who sits right across my desk at my job at the University of Washington, and she was going through a really hard time. You know, I see her all the time. And um, her mother was dying. And she, you know, she really didn't want to talk about it. She was very private, but we all just were really struggling with her. And, you know, I didn't have anything to offer her. And all I said to her was, you know, it's not a mistake that your mother is dying. It's the nature, it's the nature of our bodies to die. And I know, you know, um, I don't know if that'll be any help to you, but um, I just wanted to tell you that, that it's not a mistake. It's not a mistake what's happening. And she came back like a month later after it was all gone, and she says, she said, you know, that was so helpful to me to hear that because I was able just to surrender to the fact that, you know, my mom is gone and there was nothing any of us could have done because that was just the nature of it. So that's the first type of suffering is the suffering of dukkha, dukkha dukkha. The second type of suffering is called Viparinama dukkha, or the suffering of change or of impermanence. This suffering is trying to hold on to things that are always changing. It includes suffering of losing what we want. It includes the suffering of having what we don't want. And here's another quote from Ajahn Chah. I call this quote, the suffering when our stuff changes. Ajahn Chah says, having insight into impermanence means not allowing ourselves to suffer. It's a matter of investigating with wisdom. For example, we obtain something we consider good or pleasurable, and we're so happy. Take a close look at this goodness and this pleasure. Sometimes after having it for a time, we get fed up with it. We want to give it away or sell it. If there's nobody who wants to buy it, we are ready to throw it away. Why? Everything is impermanent, inconsistent, and changing. That's why. If we can't sell it or even throw it away, we start to suffer. This entire issue is just like that. And once one incident is fully understood, no matter how many more similar situations arise, they are all understood to be just the same. That's simply the way things are. As the saying goes, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. What is that? That's eBay, that's Craigslist, that's the Goodwill, (laughs) that's the Value Village. (laughs) eBay and Craigslist are the truth of the dukkha of change. (laughs) People are trying to sell their stuff. (laughs) Because they don't like it anymore. (laughs) And if they can't sell it, they suffer. (laughs) and we all know we have closets full of stuff we don't want I mean how many times have you bought something and then realized six months later you haven't even worn it yet so that's the second type of dukkha the dukkha of change and then there's the third type of dukkha this is Sankara dukkha 
to me, this is a really, this is the most interesting type of dukkha, and dukkha that I'm working with right now, actually. This is called all-pervasive dukkha, and essentially it means that nothing in life is perfect. This, for example, is suffering of ego clinging, um, the suffering of ego clinging, the suffering of life as it is, the struggle with karma as it is, as it unfolds, or wanting things to be different than they are. Struggling against both our situations, our inner situations, and our outer states. Sankaras, sankaras are patterns of conditioned existence. And there's such things as sankaras in our mind, habit patterns. You know, the habit patterns of our mind are called sankaras. As people of color, we live in a society that has a lot of dukkha, sankara dukkha, about race, gender, sexual orientation class, height, and weight. And one way that this dukkha is manifest is in something called microaggressions. I don't know if any of you have experienced microaggressions. (laughs) There's a wonderful website where you can go and as a way to reduce some of the reactivity of uh, these microaggressions that happen to us is you can go on there and, you know, write down your microaggression. So I pulled up a couple of the microaggressions, some funnier ones. So here's one. This is what someone wrote on a little tab on the microaggression webpage. Hey, should I go to a steakhouse or to a sushi place for dinner with my family? Friend, I think you should go to the steakhouse because you guys all know how to make sushi, right? (laughs) Professor. Where did, you go to, where did you go to school to write like this? Me. In New Jersey. <laughs> Professor. No. I mean, was it a private school? Me. No. Is something wrong? Professor. Well, you say ask versus ax, and your writing is impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> Me. Okay. <laughs> And then, I'm going to tell you a story about a beloved meditation center, and I promise you it is not IMS, (laughs) and it's not the first refuge, but there was a uh, practitioner, an African-American Buddhist practitioner, who had signed up for a meditation retreat at this meditation center, and he was waiting in line to register like everybody who was registering. And, you know, obviously, as these things have it, because there's Duke in everything, of course, it wasn't perfect, and there were certain people left off the list. And he saw that there were other, you know, um, Anglo people who had been left off the list, and uh, the attendants at the registration desk just easily said, okay, well, you know, we'll sort it out, but what's your name? We'll sign you up here. So uh, he got up to the front of the line, and it turns out that his name wasn't on the list either. And the attendant at the counter said to him, are you sure this is the event you registered for? (laughs) Little teeny microaggressions. I actually, um, on my way here to this retreat center, I sat next to this really lovely man who was from Alaska. 
And um, I, fl I fly on Alaska Airlines because I'm from Seattle and that's our airlines. And he just started telling me how he had lived with the Eskimo, um, AKA Inupiaq is what they call themselves now. And um, you know, he was get, telling me the difference between the Inupiaq and well, the Eskimo and the Athabascans in Alaska. You know, one were industrious, hardworking people and one were pretty lazy. And he just felt totally free to tell me all of this. And I was just sitting there going, boy, you really have a lot of views, you know. <laughs> and we were joking around about it. I said, I can't believe you really just said that to me. And um, actually, that's the second time this has happened to me. So what I did was I took out my Macintosh and my Mac, my MacBook Pro, and I took a picture of us together. And I said, I'm going to put you in my PowerPoint on microaggressions. And he said, oh, sure, go ahead, go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this is just a way to show that there are... This, this is one type of dukkha that we as people of color, you know, and you know, we get the same thing around race, I mean around uh, gender or similar things around gender, around sexual orientation. They had a lot of little sticky notes on this pad about all of those. Um, and you know, how is this manifest in us as dukkha? You know, we struggle with our own thoughts and emotions rather than opening and allowing. It's a, this type of sankara dukkha is a basic unsatisfactoriness pervading all forms of life. It indicates a lack of satisfaction. This is an affirmation of what we all know to be true, that life is difficult. Life is difficult. If we expect it to be any other way, we're going to suffer even more. We're going to suffer the second, the second arrow. Or when, a, when a, um, or when an experience is absolutely perfect, it changes. I have an um, experience of when something really does, is really wonderful, and lives up to the expectation of it, which we know is not very often, there's a sense of wanting even more of it than you already have. It's like you have a wonderful lobster dinner in, your, in front of you, and you have enough that you know you can eat enough and you know, get your fill of lobster, but you you want like concentrated lobster. <laughs> I remember sitting with um, who was it? It was Wes Nisker at Okamura in New Mexico, this incredibly beautiful place. And he sat down and he said, Okamura is so beautiful, I just love it. I want it more than I already have it. <laughs> It's like we just can't even get enough of what is just right there in front of us. That is Sankara Dukkha. And then, um, actually, the Buddha does a wonderful job of listing the different types of Dukkha. And why it's useful to look at this is that we might be able to keep an eye out for it as it arises on the cushion. I want to just uh, mention one more type of dukkha, or, or a few more types, and one is the uh, sorrow, uh, the suffering from sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Sorrow is intense woe because of some deprivation. Lamentation is crying and weeping. Pain is bodily pain. Grief is any kind of mental unhappiness. And as people of color, I want to mention a few, um, a few types of 
sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair that might be particular to us. And the reason I say these is because I think there's a possibility of getting really healing from them on the cushion. You know, there's no, there's absolutely um, no reason to dwell on them except as a, a focus of liberation, as a way to really open up, feel it, and have these types of suffering move through us. So one type of suffering that um, my colleagues and I um, have written about and talked about a lot is something called historical trauma. That is the collective emotional and psychological injury both over the lifespan and across generations resulting from a history of colonization and oppression and genocide. And many of our communities, we have felt that. There's historical unresolved grief And this is grief resulting from historical trauma, grief that has not been expressed, acknowledged, or resolved. A lot of um, other countries actually have things like truth and reconciliation committees. Even in Canada, they actually have, um, you know, done official apologies and in South Africa. And this really helps the resolution of grief. We haven't really done that so much here. But we can do that for ourselves on the cushion. We can resolve these on the cushion and really take out the reactivity of this intergenerational trauma that we're all carrying around. And then the third type I'd like to mention is called disenfranchised grief. Grief that persons experience when a loss cannot be openly acknowledged or publicly mourned. So this is, you know... um, Grief from an injury that no one knows about or no one is willing to admit. And this can be really, you know, very uh, suffering producing. And then I want to talk about another type of suffering that many of us working in our own communities of color might experience. And this is suffering of getting what you don't want, being unable to avoid difficult or painful situations. And um, this happened to me while I was actually on retreat up there in May. Right in the middle of the retreat, I got a, a note from my, res- my staff at the University of Washington saying, man, your research partners, you know, we, we were submitting a big, huge grant, and we had gotten um, seven really great, f- fabulous letters of support from tribal organizations. And... We, you know, we're getting one from a um, national association associated with our work, and they wrote, "Oh, yeah, this is really important, but she should have done it a little bit differently." (laughs) (laughs) So, this is the suffering of getting what you don't want. And you know, as activists in our own communities, we know that sometimes, you know, people are just never going to be happy with what we do. I remember going to an, uh, a party once where uh, there was a lot of Native activists and others sitting around, and we decided we were going to write a book called, an edited book, we were all going to do chapters called Shot Off My White Horse. So this is really the suffering of getting what we don't want, the suffering of not getting what we do want. It's an all-pervasive suffering, a very subtle dissatisfaction that exists all the time. It arises as a reaction to the qualities of conditioned things, and it's just inevitable. If we expect things to be different than that, we're going to suffer. 
And luckily, you know, being on the cushion, I had a lot of equanimity. At first, I was kind of thinking, oh, man, I'm not going to work anymore, blah, 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 blah. I should do secondary data analysis. I don't need to go into communities, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, the equanimity... <laughs> You know, the equanimity kicked in, and, <laughs> and I was fine with it. Actually, it didn't take that long, actually. It took maybe a couple hours, and I was like, that's dukkha. That is the truth of dukkha. And, you know, as soon as I got out of retreat, they were calling me saying, okay, when are we going to submit the next grant? <laughs> so, you know, even their snarkiness did not last more than two weeks. They were saying, oh, you know, let's write this grant. we got to get it in by July 10th. So their snarkiness didn't last either. That's impermanent. It's all impermanent. If I had, you know, come out of retreat and been really angry and said, oh, you guys, you know, it would have made things a lot worse. Non-reactivity is the absolute best response to any type of dukkha because it will change. You don't know what it's going to roll into the next minute. So now I want to talk, I've talked to half an hour about dukkha. Now I want to talk about the end of dukkha for the next half hour. Part two. <laughs> Freedom from suffering. How do we bring skill and wholesomeness to dukkha? So I want to tell you, uh, you know, one of my teachers uh, in Seattle, Rodney Smith, he, you know, uh, brought me into his office for an interview, and he said, Bonnie, I know you're going to be taking that seat. And he said, you should really teach what you know. You know, just really teach what you know. That's the tradition of the Dhamma, is to teach what you know. So I'm going to tell you what my personal approach to suffering is. And it's very, very simple. My approach to dukkha is that I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. My approach to dukkha is a deep refuge, and it has done incredible things for me. I want to read to you some um, quotes about taking refuge, or about the path, about Tamaga, the path. First, I'm gonna, first I'm going to read you an old Cherokee story about the path. An old Cherokee grandfather is teaching his grandson about life. I'm sure many of you have heard this. Uh, the grandfather says to his grandson, a fight is going on inside me, he said to the boy. It's a terrible fight and it is between two wolves. One is evil. This wolf has anger, envy, sorrow, regret, this wolf has greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, false pride, and ego. He lies. And he paused a second and he continued. And he says, and I have another wolf. The other wolf is good. He has wisdom. He has joy and peace. He's patient. He has serenity. He has determination, humility, kindness, empathy, generosity, truth and compassion, and faith. And the grandfather said to the boy, the same fight is, is going, to, going on inside you. That same fight is going on inside every person too. The grandson thought for about a minute and then asked his grandfather, 
which wolf will win? And the grandfather simply replied, the one you feed. And this old Cherokee grandfather, Ajahn Chah, (laughs) says something incredibly similar. I was so happy when I found this. So this is what Ajahn Chah says about Maga, about the path, about the Eightfold Path. He says, this path consists of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, the framework for training the heart. If the factors of the Eightfold Path are weak and timid, the defilements, our negative habit patterns, will possess our minds. If Maga, the path, is strong and courageous, it will conquer and destroy the defilements. It is the defilements that are powerful and brave. If it's the defilements that are powerful and brave while the path is feeble and frail, the defilements conquer our hearts. As Dharma practice develops in the heart, these two forces have to battle it out every step of the way. It's like there are two people arguing inside the mind but it's just the path of Dhamma and the defilement struggling to win domination of the heart. The path guides and fosters our ability to see clearly. As long as we are able to see clearly, the defilements will be losing ground. But if we are shaky, whenever defilements regroup and regain their strength, the path will be routed as defilements take its place. These two sides will continue to fight it out until eventually there is a victor and the whole affair is settled. The path, the good wolf. That's what we're doing on these cushions. We're feeding the good wolf and we're taking the, taking the nutriment from the bad wolf, from the defilements. We're rooting out the defilements and we are giving, watering the seeds and putting fertilizer on the good seeds of the path. So... The Buddha said that dukkha is to be known. How can we know dukkha? Mindfulness. Mindfulness meditation is the way to gain insight into dukkha. I have this, uh, the dukkha said, this is the only way, O yogis at IMS, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of freedom and awakening, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That's a pretty wonderful guarantee. The Buddha guarantees us that if we do this, we can be free. Um, I have this colleague, uh, this native colleague, Michael um, Yellowbird. He calls mindfulness meditation neurodecolonization. <laughs> It is. It's decolonizing us. It's taking out all of the, you know, three types of racism. It's providing us the calm and clarity to react with wisdom to institutionalized racism. It's allowing us to react with calm and wisdom to microaggressions to, you know, everyday racism. And it's providing us absolutely the tools we need to undo internalized racism. Because, you know, have, there's many of those, um, many of those um, 
beliefs and theories about our genetic inferiority that are still floating around that we've internalized. And part of, and you know, I think we all know that. And we all know that part of our reactivity is that, that place in us, you know, when we hear that, it touches that place in us that might still even believe that a little bit. So this being on the cushion, it allows us to really open up to that suffering. And um, so that's what we're doing here. We are opening up to our suffering. And so there's certain steps that we can take. The first step is that we can hold a positive frame of mind that we can understand that our suffering can be a transformative, that we can really have a transformative use of suffering, a door to insight and awakening, versus just viewing our suffering in, uh, through the lens of self-pity or being confused or a complaining victim of suffering. Uh, the Dalai Lama says, when we meet real tragedy in life, we can react in two ways, either by losing hope and falling into self-destructive habits, or by using the challenge to find our inner strength. And I just have to mention um, where I work. You know, we have an American Indian, Alaska Native, and Indigenous Research Center. Actually, we do research, we do training, and we do um, service. And the rest of the staff right now are actually re-walking the Choctaw Trail of Tears. They're re-walking it to reclaim it as a, to reclaim the meaning of it, to turn it into something really positive. Mm-hmm. They're reflecting on the, um, what their ancestors meant for that, for that walk. Their ancestors really thought that they were going, you know, that they were promised a better life, and they did that walk thinking about seven generations you know, down the line. They did it for the benefit of their future generations. And they're, they're retaking this walk and reflecting on that and trying to um, heal and you know, find the wisdom of that in order to um, solve some of the problems of the tribe. So they are really using that suffering as a way to, they're you know, transforming that suffering into something very positive. And, you know, that's one approach that we can take to our suffering on the cushion as well. So the first step is to hold a positive frame of mind. The second step is um, actually the rest of the steps are exactly what Joseph talked about, what is included in, in mindfulness. The first is recognition. We have to recognize what our suffering is. And, you know, the Dharma world is so convoluted. So I'm going to tell you something that I heard from Carol Wilson. She heard from a Dharma talk that Joseph Goldstein gave. And Joseph Goldstein was telling about something that Saida Upandita told him. (laughs) So I thought this was really excellent, though. Um, Saida Upandita told Joseph that 100% of our suffering is due to our own mental defilements. 100% of it is due to our own mental defilements. That's pretty deep. And what are, so the first uh, step of this is the recognition of what those defilements are. They can manifest as negative habit patterns and they're all rooted in the three root poisons, greed, hatred, and delusions. They're negative habit patterns, sankaras, and they are the cause of clinging, craving, and becoming. And how do we, um, so once we recognize our, um, 
and one way that we, one thing we need to do to recognize what our defilements or afflictions are is to understand how we're evading seeing that. So what are some of the ways that we evade opening to our suffering? We have outright denial. Oh, I'm not suffering. I mean, doesn't it drive you crazy when you know someone is really suffering and you ask them, well, what's the matter? Nothing's the matter. <laughs> Usually it's our significant other. You're saying, you know, what's going on with you? Nothing, I'm fine. <laughs> outright denial of, you know, some experience, some, and, you know, to explore that and share that, there would be real intimacy that comes from that. I mean, that's where intimacy of our own self comes from, too. You know, it comes from opening to what's happening to ourselves. Um, another um, way that we evade our afflictions is explaining away our situation, trying to push our feelings into the background. Uh, and I want to say something briefly here about one very common one of people who do spiritual practice, and that's called spiritual bypass. Have you heard of spiritual bypass? Here's one uh, description of it by Ingrid Mathau. Spiritual bypass is a defense mechanism. Although the defense looks a lot prettier than other defenses, it serves the same purpose. Spiritual bypass shields us from the truth. It disconnects us from our feelings and helps us avoid the big picture. It is more about checking out than checking in, and the difference is so subtle that we usually don't know, even know that we are doing it. The shorthand for spiritual bypass is grasping rather than gratitude, arriving rather than being, avoiding rather than accepting. It is the spiritual practice in the service of repression, usually because we cannot tolerate what we are feeling or think that we shouldn't be experiencing what we are feeling. So that's um, other ways that we try to evade our suffering is to become preoccupied with external fixes. And, you know, we know that all of the drug addiction in the world is absolutely connected to, or not all of it, you know, let's not have absolutes. A lot of the drug abuse and alcohol abuse that we see is, is definitely um, a way out of suffering. Another way that we evade um, opening to our own suffering is blame, projecting our suffering onto others. I am just the queen of blame. <laughs> you know, I often um, find it really interesting just to see how much I blame other people about what's going on around me. And then the, the next one is self-pity. I guess I'm the king of self-pity. <laughs> You know, getting to understand how self-pity works in our lives, it has been so liberating for me. I actually had a tangible, like, physical jolt insight about my own self-pity when I did the three-month here, like, four years ago. And I've been able to see it as it comes up now. And I want to talk about um, how mindfulness deconditions that. So... I saw my own self-pity and, you know, the various aspects of it. And what does mindfulness do? Mindfulness holds what we're seeing between repression, we're not repressing it, and we're not indulging in it. You know, the thoughts that we have, the papancha is indulging, turning our backs to it is repressing. But with mindfulness, we just hold it in the middle of that. We don't deny it. We don't obsess. We don't push away. We don't cling. 
we hold it in the middle and that allows it to decondition and to just get the charge out of it. And if we do that enough, it's like that, you know, it just melts within the light of clarity and we can decondition that in our mind. And we decondition that in our neural pathways as well. You know, the uh, neuroscience is, you know, probably just beginning to catch up to what the Buddha taught, really. So that's how mindfulness really helps us with these defilements. It really holds it in a way that we can see, see clearly and just let it go. So this is what uh, Sayada Utejaniya, who is just here, says about that. Observe how such emotions make you feel. Do they make you feel hot, tense, tight, etc.? Also pay attention to the thoughts that you are having and how the thoughts and the way you feel affect each other. Don't get lost in the story or get ca- carried away by how you are feeling. So remember that. Now, you know, we don't sink into what we're feeling. You will learn how thoughts influence your feelings and how feelings influence your thoughts. You might want to look for that. You will recognize certain harmful patterns, and this will enable the mind to let go. You will, for example, stop indulging in certain ways of thinking when you realize that this makes the mind feel miserable. You need, of course, a relatively cool mind to be able to watch and learn. It's also very important to know why you are watching. If you're watching because you, really, you are really interested in understanding what is going on, wisdom can arise. But if you are just looking at what is happening with the hope that this will make the unpleasant emotion go away, it will not work. So that brings us to the next thing that Joseph talked about, about the ingredients of really sweet mindfulness, and that is acceptance. So we have recognition, and now we have acceptance. And this acceptance, this opening, is a radical turnabout that occurs when we, we begin wholeheartedly to accept our situation just how it is. There is a profound sense of relief, of liberation, which is also freedom from self-centeredness. When we can stop clinging to it, we open to the fact that this is a universal characteristic. This is not just our suffering. This is our suffering, and it allows us to really open up and bring in, bring in what's happening with others as well. Opening to suffering is the proximal cause of compassion to arise. And, you know, as people of color and those of us who work in our communities, I think we need to be careful a, a, a little here because... Um, We have a lot of theories and um, analysis about why certain things are happening. And, you know, the Buddha, um, you know, the Buddha was walking with his monks in the forest and he asked his monks, he actually picked up a handful of leaves and he asked his monks, he said, monks, what's bigger, the leaves in this whole forest or the leaves in my hand? And the monks said, of course, um, Buddha, the leaves in the forest are bigger. And he said, yes, that's true. And he said, what I know is as much as the leaves in the forest, but what I teach is only the leaves, 
that I have in my hand is this handful of leaves. And why do I do that? Because this is all you need to know to end your suffering. This is all you need to know. So I think we need to realize that sometimes all of our theories and our approaches and our methodologies are, can be really, really useful when we're out there working in the world. All our skills, please, I'm saying that we need to embrace them and really, uh, really use them. But when we're on the cushion, they're not necessarily useful. The Buddha taught us and, you know, taught us what we need to do to relieve our suffering. And personally, I think he was smarter than me. <laughs> so I'm going to believe him. So, um, so finally, um, well, not finally, but another um, aspect of this right mindfulness or this approach to alleviating our, um, our dukkha, our suffering, is investigation. And um, Joseph talked about that as well. It can, and this investigation, particularly as people of color, goes into our own investigation of particular types of suffering that are, um, are specific to us, like microaggressions and like historical drama and uh, drama. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true too, historical drama. But historical trauma and unresolved grief. But this investigation, you know, because of the work that we do and because of our deep intention to, to be forces not only for our own liberation but for the liberation of all of us, we have to investigate what's happening with the so-called enemy. As the Dalai Lama said, our friends are the enemy. You know, I mean, we really have to bring that level of investigation in there too. And it can be deeply unsettling to open with empathy to the feelings and views of our adversaries beyond the you know, right and wrong, uh, red and white, male and female, gay and straight dichotomies that we have. But we need to do that because that type of openness investigation, that open, openness to hearing and to that dukkha, um, you know, if we can open with gentleness and with a little bit of clarity to our own dukkha on the cushion, it just trains us to do that for, for our adversaries as well. And it really creates a dialogue and an openness. People can feel if you're truly open or not. I think that that's why those, you know, um, beloved racist white men I sit next to on planes can tell me that stuff. <laughs> How do, you know, why do they think that they can just tell me this stuff? It must be that I'm sitting there with a big smile. How are you doing? And I sincerely mean it. Because there's parts of them that are really, you know, quite tender and real. We all have, you know, we all have so much good and bad in us. The proximal cause of metta, of loving kindness to arise is seeing the good in others. You know, if you're having a... trouble seeing the good of someone that you're um, dealing with, think of the good things that they have done in the past. Bring those to mind. And loving kindness and friendliness might arise too as well. So, just as a summary, we approach our dukkha by approaching it with the path, with maga. And maga fights the bad wolf. And we feed Maga, we grow the path. The path is sila samadhi panya, it's virtue. 
It's collected energy. It's wisdom. That's what we're, we're cultivating here. And virtue, it's really important. All of those together is what maga is. It's a force in our life. We might ask if, you know, if we really don't exist as we think we do, what is it that is, you know, all of this? What is this? It's maga and defilement, fighting it out. That's what it is. So um, to end, I want to say that um, how we address suffering is that we do the work of the Four Noble Truths. We understand suffering. We open and we understand suffering. We let go of clinging. We realize true happiness and we cultivate the path. Let's just sit for a minute. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous peaks of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and every molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.